Welcome to the Mind Your Autistic Brain podcast with Social Audi. That's me, Carol Jean. And today, my incredible guest, who has been in the autistic community since 1992 online and going global, he has spoken on stages across the globe, is from Israel. And I'd like you to meet my friend, Hen Gershani. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, Ken normally hangs out on Facebook, so if you want to connect with Ken, then that's where you can find him, and it's spelled C-H-E-N, so us Americans and, and Brits, we all say Shen or Chen, <laughs> and he's good with that. He said just however it comes out, he answers, <laughs> but it is he is um, in Israel, and it is Ken, so if you are like me and you do try and pronounce people's names correctly, that is how you pronounce it. Um, Ken, I would love for you to share a little bit of your autism journey, your autism story with us before we get into the amazing history of the autistic community today. Okay, so I was born in 1970 in an era where nobody knew much about autism. And I grew up uh, feeling very different from everybody else from a very young age, like a very young age. And I was always looking for the answer, why am I the way I am? And I started, became interested in psychology because of that, because I was interested in, to find the answer. And then it took many, many years. I mean, I didn't have an answer. Eventually, uh, when we get to the history of the autistic community in the 1990s, when, when I was in my 20s, uh, that was when autism began to be a bit more known. And when we go into the story, I will talk about Donna Williams, uh, who published a few autobiographical books about her life as an autistic person. And actually, when her first book was uh, translated into Hebrew in 1996, I just, uh, I read about it in a newspaper because I used to read uh, lots and lots of newspapers and especially the literary supplements. I loved reading about books. Uh, so when Donna Williams published her first autobiography, it initially, uh, immediately seemed really, really fascinating because how could she be autistic and publish a book that was contradictory to anything I knew about autism? And I did know about autism, uh, what the media was saying, and a bit more than what the media was saying. And, Still, it seemed it made no sense. So I had to read the book, and, <laughs> and when I read the book, uh, she describes uh, what are the common uh, features of autism, and that was the things I was wondering about about myself since childhood, and, and that was the answer. And uh, after reading the book, I went online, and back then. I wasn't, the community started in 92, but I discovered Donna Williams in 97. So I discovered the community maybe a year later. After reading Donna Williams, I went online, it took about a year because the community was tiny. So in 98, I really discovered the community. And initially, I was just following it, just reading. I didn't communicate with anyone. It, it took a whole de almost a decade. Uh, between discovering the community and actually becoming active in the community because it was so, so tiny in the 90s that I, I didn't really feel there was anything to join for me. And, but then 
in the mid 2000s towards 2010, then I became more active. And, and nowadays I translate a lot of things into Hebrew, a lot of uh, like articles about interesting autistic people because I want to raise awareness in Israel. So I have, a fa apart from my own Facebook page, I also have the Hebrew Neurodiversity Magazine, which is basically just things I translate from English uh, in order to raise awareness. And we also have our own organization of autistic activists in Israel. And I was like one of the founders. Basically, I knew the founders when they were thinking about setting it up. And then they said, so what do you say? We set it up. I said, yeah, OK. And now they're saying I'm a co-founder. I just said, yeah, OK. And, uh, and in the last few years, I play in a, in a non-autistic band in the last year and a half. I mean, that, that's a new development in the community over here that we're start, starting to have uh, autistic people joining around their common interests and working together. I love that. And it is a fantastic group. And our, our mutual friend, Morty, and by the way, you introduced me to Morty, and you actually translated his book uh, from Hebrew into English, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was a big, that was much harder. Than <laughs> that was much harder. But then uh, uh, I, I know a lot of autistic people in England because I go there to the Otscape conference and someone from the conference uh, came and visit, visited us here. And then when she stayed with Mordi, uh, she said she could help translate the book. So then I did the first translation because she doesn't speak Hebrew, but <laughs> then uh, she went over the translation together with me. And basically she changed almost every sentence because she said, what do you say? Did you actually mean this? Oh yeah, I did mean this. But uh, when she said it, it was so obvious to me that it should be like this, but it, it's much harder to do it yourself. It's much easier to just see it and say, oh yeah, that's how it should be. Hey, so, team, teamwork makes the dream work. We got to all work together. Yeah. yeah Marty, so. I am so excited that you are here today. Uh, when we first talked about this a couple weeks ago, I have been waiting for this day. Like I didn't even want to look at the slide pack that you sent me because I didn't want to ruin the experience of going through this and learning with you. So I am so excited that everybody who is joining us today, if you're on the podcast or you're on the YouTube channel, you're getting to see the slides and I'll include those in the, in the show notes uh, for those of you for the podcast. But uh, Ken is going to share with us a brief history of the autistic community. Cause I think it's so important that we know where th something started, what are the origins? You know, I, from my scientific brain, I'm always looking for, you know, what, where did something start? How did something evolve? What is it, you know, started and where did it end up? Where is it now? And where do I see it sort of predicting where the evolution is going? So I love that we're having this conversation today. So take it away, my friend. Okay, thank you very much. So this is a brief history of the autistic community. And here on the first slide, I have a book here by the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And from my perspective, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network is not a very old organization because it started in 2006. So, so on the one hand, it's not very new, but it's not one of the very first ones. But they, 
I just love it that they published a book, Welcome to the Autistic Community, and they have it uh, as, as a digital copy. Everyone can download it from their website. So anyone who is new to the autistic community and wants to learn about the community can download the book from their website. Uh, but now to the beginning of the community. So from my perspective, the beginning was definitely in 1992, uh, because back then uh, Donna Williams, an autistic author from Australia, published her first autobiography, and she called it Nobody Nowhere, and it was a very nice name. I think for lots of us who are late identified, uh, we felt a bit like Nobody Nowhere <laughs> before we knew we were autistic. And, Donna Williams, she was diagnosed at the age of 27. So she also had quite a lot of life uh, before discovering she was autistic. And most of the autobiography speaks about her life uh, until discovering she was autistic. But uh, she also talks a lot, a lot about uh, what it means to be autistic. Uh, so it's, it's good for anyone who is wondering whether they're autistic to read the book. To know a bit more. And I should say that there were other autistics who published books in the 1980s and probably even before, but they didn't go to form a community. And Donna Williams was one of the founders of the autistic community. Also, her book was 15 Weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in the first half of 93. So, so it was quite, it did have an impact, unlike other books that were only read by very few people. So, so the book was so important because, because of the book, uh, she went on a tour to the United States uh, to promote the book. And prior to arriving in the United States, uh, she managed to get in touch with a few other autistic people uh, through a pen, pen pal list, like the old way, sending letters to each other before the days of email. Uh, because there were a few groups of parents' organizations uh, who kept uh, pen pal lists for, for autistics who wanted to correspond with each other. So, so, so she wanted, she was curious to know other autistics. Because I say she was diagnosed at the age of 27, and then she published this book at the age of 29. I mean, she was, she was diagnosed in 1990, and then 92, she already had a book out. She was already touring the United States. She was already trying to connect with other autistics. And then, so when she was on tour in the United States, uh, she managed to get uh, two other autistics uh, to meet her. Uh, the other ones were Jim Sinclair and Kathy Lissner. And, they spent a couple of days together in Kathy's apartment in St. Louis, Missouri. And Jim Sinclair uh, went along uh, to be probably the most important person, at least in the first decade or so of the autistic community. And after meeting each other at Kathy's apartment, uh, Donna Williams described the meeting in her next autobiography. And she called her next autobiography Somebody Somewhere, because it deals with, the, with discovering that she was autistic and with discovering the autistic community. And she said that together we felt like a lost tribe. Uh, normal is to be in the company of one like oneself. And 
and Jim Sinclair uh, wrote about the meeting, uh, my own recollection of this meeting of, is a feeling that after a life spent among aliens, I had met someone who came from the same planet as me, we understood each other. So yeah, this analogy of someone who comes from the same planet of you as you, it kind of goes throughout the history of the autistic community. Oh, well, I think we definitely have a lot of people nodding their heads saying, yes, I know exactly what they mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, it's amazing that it was in 1992 because you say that you've meet, you're meeting more and more people in the 30s or 40s or older who are discovering nowadays. And it's interesting to go back to 92 and see that it already existed. <laughs> I know, because I, I think back, like, where was I in 1992? I was a senior in high school. I was graduating from high school that year. And I remember thinking, I don't really understand anybody. I'm just doing what I think everybody else is doing to kind of fit in and move along. And I can imagine just if I could have been in that room with them to feel like I wasn't an alien, that would have been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so... And then Jim Sinclair writes that we decided to start our own organization rather than continue to be dependent on anti-run organizations because they met each other through a mailing list run by parents. And also Jim Sinclair said that he used to go to autism conferences. So, so uh, I shouldn't refer to Jim as he because Jim Sinclair is non-binary, so probably they. So they used to go to autism conferences and meet some other autistics, but it was still uh, not a good atmosphere to meet each other because of all of the noise and it was difficult. And I should also say that Jim Sinclair themselves also was born in the early 1960s and Jim Sinclair was diagnosed autistic as a child, but then as a grown up, they kind of forgot about it. I remember reading somewhere maybe around the age of 20 or not that long before that meeting, it's kind of occurred to them that they were indeed autistic. It's something that it wasn't, it was a re-identification at an older age. And so they started their own organization and Jim became the coordinator and remained a very very important person within the organization and they called it autism network international but from my perspective it's really a bad name because then it doesn't tell you that it's run by autistic people it could be apparent but probably back then <laughs> they didn't think about that and they started the penpal list and again just normal penpal list in the post because it was 1992 and most people didn't have emails so <laughs> So just normal penpal list and a newsletter, like uh, a small magazine, Our Voice. I would love to to see if there are any copies left somewhere, because I've never seen a physical copy. should be fascinating to see. And yeah, that really would. I would love to see some copies of that as well. We need, yeah. to, we need to do a little uh, hunt and research project to see if we can track a few of those down. If anybody listening knows or has a copy of Our Voice newsletter, Hen and I would love to see a copy of it. So please send it via email to one of us. Yeah, I, I, don't, I have no idea how many were actually published. I mean, but interesting. 
uh, and then in 94, I started the, uh, an email list, ANIL, uh, because 94, you know, people were starting to go online. And also, I think Jim was studying at uh, Syracuse University at the time. So, so through the university, he had the technical ability to start a mailing list. And this is the autistic and proud uh, pin. I don't think they made it in 94. I just, because uh, I attended some of the conferences uh, later in 2007, 2008 and later. So back then in 2007, I saw these pins. So this was probably a later thing, the, the autistic and proud things. So I'm going to ask, wait a minute, go, go back to that real quick. So this is a, like a lapel button that you have, and it's got autistic and proud at the top. And then it has, is, is that sort of a, what kind of animal is that, do you think? It's a llama. It's a llama, okay. Yeah, they, they had the story about the llama. I don't remember why. It was some innocent, they had a discussion about the llama on the mailing list. I don't know why, why. Uh, and that's why. They <laughs> okay, well, my, my very artsy brain was like, hmm, it's not a camel. It's not, you know, and I was trying to identify. So a llama, okay, so we got a llama. Yeah, I remember they loved writing on their list. Llama, llama, llama. I don't know why. <laughs> The word Lama, I mean, I mean, in Hebrew, it means why, but they were not Israelis, so they wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like that Lama is why. Yeah. I always find that interesting for word origins. You know, I, I saw it and you say Lama and I'm like, immediately think of the children's book, Is Your Mama a Lama? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just where my brain goes. I wonder how many people listening thought of the book, Is Your Mama a Llama, when we said llama. <laughs> if you thought of Is Your Mama a Llama, let me know. I want to know. <laughs> so then in 96, they decided it's time to have an annual conference, not, not just a mailing list, not just a newsletter, actually go somewhere and meet each other. And, they had it each and every year until 2013. So like 17 years in a row, it's huge. And in the first few years, they had it in somewhere in upstairs New York. I don't remember the name, like a camping site. I don't know, Shattuck, I don't know, don't remember the name. But later they went to several venues in Pennsylvania and I went to a trip in 2007, it was in um, Temple University, just outside of Philadelphia. And I went a year later, 2008, it was somewhere Bradford. It was also a university. I don't remember which university, but it was in the town of Bradford in Pennsylvania, but really close to New York, I remember. And later, 2011, I went, it was in also in a university campus in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So people, I mean, it was mostly autistic people from America, but in the years when I attended, there were always people from around the world. People came from uh, South Africa, Australia, Greece, I think. It was really interesting. 
Yeah. That isn't a wonderful uh, meeting of people from all over the globe coming together. Yeah, uh, someone from Japan came one oh, year. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, this, this, you know, meeting in an apartment and sort of the pen pal list and then the newsletter and, and then the email list and just sort of the evolution just sort of started yeah. to expand around the globe. And then they started to bring people together in these annual conferences. Boy, that is just exciting. I, do you remember the first time you went? I mean, were you just really excited and just seeking to meet others the whole time or information? Or how, how, did it, yeah. how did it feel to be there? Well, before I went, I was mostly really, really curious because I only met a tiny amount of autistic people before. So I was curious about what, how it would be. And then being there, it was interesting, you know. It's still interesting. I mean, so many years later, and I still feel like, like I'm researching the autistic community. Like, I still don't have my answers. I don't know. Because you meet and everybody's different. It's like they're saying you met one autistic person, you met one autistic person. And, but I say even when you meet a hundred or more, it's still, in a way, just a beginning. Anyway, it's interesting. It's definitely a good thing to attend. And now we'll go a bit uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So in the same year, yeah, in the same year, in 1996, uh, Martin Decker from the Netherlands, he started another mailing list called Independent Living on the, Aut on the Autistic Spectrum. And only today I was wondering why did he start this if there was an, already the Autism Network International mailing list? Did he not know about it? But he published uh, an article about it, and I read it today, and he said that, first of all, himself, he was also diagnosed age 20-something in 1996, so, so he also grew up not knowing he was autistic. And then when he was diagnosed, he went online to search about autism, and he did find the Autism Network International mailing list. He was a member, but he said, I think it it relates to what I said earlier. He said Autism Network International, it was a specific group of autistic people. They had their, their own culture. And I don't know exactly why, but he felt like it's not enough. There need to be more opportunities for different kinds of autistics. So, so we started an, an alternative mailing list. And here, I mean, Martin is still very active in the autistic community in Europe. And this photo, I think, I think it's from around 96, so probably a bit later. Uh, he was lecturing on many, many autism conferences back then. He still is. And, and two years later, uh, the autistic sociologist Judy Singer coined the term neurodiversity. Uh, she did a master's degree about the term neurodiversity, and she published parts of it in a book called Disability Discourse. But the interesting thing is that only today I read what Martin wrote about his mailing list, and he wrote that Judy Singer was a member of the mailing list, 
and the draft of the, of the ideas that came into her master's degree came from the mailing list. And she actually uh, interviewed a lot of the members of the list in order to put, uh, to get their ideas into her master's studies. And she quoted quite a lot of them. So, so it's really interesting how, how it went from Martin's mailing list into the concept of neurodiversity. And the book here on the slide, it's a much newer book. It's from just a couple of years ago, but because she, she published her own book a, a couple of years ago, uh, talking about uh, what she published more than 20 years ago and about how it evolved since then. And, and I think 98 was an interesting year in the autistic community. Things started to develop. There was the autistic.org website started by Laura Tisonzik. And she was also, I think, a member of the Autism Network International list, but she also wanted to have her, her own website uh, to do things her own way. And she put a lot of humor in it. There was the Institute for the Study of the Neurologically Typical. That was one of the pages on the website. And, you know, it was all the upside down. Like if they say autistics, I don't know, have a special interests. So she said that neurotypicals don't have special interests. And that's a, that's a pathology, you know. And she goes from one symptom to the other to show how being neurotypical is actually a pathology. And I remember this website from about that time because that was the time I, I started reading a lot of autism stuff online. And now, now in 2002, there was another very interesting website. It was called Aspergia, and it was also started with someone who was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome around that time. I think one of the interesting things is if people like Donna Williams, Jim Sinclair, they were diagnosed as autistic because the term Asperger's syndrome wasn't very known until the early 90s. And then throughout the 90s, the term Asperger's syndrome became widely spread, and this is why Toward 2000, there were suddenly many, many people diagnosed with Asperger's. So the guy who started it also, I, I don't remember how old he was, but he, he was diagnosed and immediately went to form the website. And what was interesting was that he wrote a bit of a mythology, like there's the island of Asperger, and that's where the people with Asperger syndrome come from. It's like an ancient civilization. And, and the website allows all members of the civilization to reconnect with each other and to rebuild the civilization. No, no, the oh, thing about that. the web. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I heard someone the other day, um, we were having a conversation and they were talking about and referring to that same concept of, you know, revitalizing, you know, the lost civilization. It's sort of, you know, sort of the Greek mythology type thing, you know, that this this great wealth of knowledge is sunk to the bottom of the ocean and, you know, we're resurfacing all of the, the information and the history and the culture of, of the people. And I feel like that is probably a lot of sort of what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think many people would understand it. But the website, you know, that was the time in which 
I didn't follow the autistic community because after following it a lot from 1998 to 2000, there wasn't really that much and I became a bit bored. I said, oh, but if this is all there is, then I don't know, I have no place here. So I, I left it for a few years and so I wasn't there in real time. But this Aspergate closed after just two years. I don't know why it closed. But the importance of it is that some of the people who met each other through Asperger went along to form other things. And a more important website, in my opinion, is Aspis for Freedom. So it started because Asperger was closed and people wanted to continue, continue working together, speaking to each other. So two of the members who met each other on Asperger started Aspies for Freedom. And back then they were called uh, Gareth and Amy. Uh, nowadays, uh, throughout the years, uh, Gareth became a woman. So, so, so now she's known as, I forgot her name, Gwen. Okay. Now she is a woman called Gwen. But, but, uh, and she now, she wasn't active in the community for many years, but Last year, in the last year or so, she kind of appeared again. And anyway, back then they were called Gareth and Amy, and they, they became a couple. I think they still are, even though nowadays they're Gwen and Amy. And Aspies for Freedom, I did join it in 2005, and what I liked about it, that it was starting to become a bit political in a way. It was like... like it wasn't just a community. There were also lots of discussions about what we do as a community in the outside world. How do we advance the rights of autistic people and how do we fight against mistreatments of autistic people? Um, and one of the initiatives, oh, before one of the initiatives, one of the initiatives would be on the next slide, but here we have another website that started in the same year as Aspies for Freedom, and it was called Wrong Planet. So again, we have this uh, feeling of being people from out of space. And it was started by someone called Alex Plank, who was 17 when he started this website. And this website actually, it still exists. Uh, it has a forum system. And I still go there just to, to publicize things. So I don't know, I was there for a few years and there were maybe a hundred thousand uh, participants. About a decade ago, there were about a hundred thousand. Uh, nowadays, I no longer know because I think Facebook took a lot of the traffic because like people no longer need dedicated websites. But, but it's still going on. I mean, when I go there, there are always hundreds of new messages. So. <laughs> So still going on. Uh, yeah. And now to the Aspies for Freedom initiative that started in 2005, they decided to make an autistic pride day because if you wanna have a community, if you wanna build a shirt, a shirt, I don't know, activism, it's good to have one day a year, which is your pride day. And they chose June 18th simply because uh, one of the younger members of the forum, he was 10 years old or something, and he really loved the idea of the Autistic Pride Day, and he said, hey, let's choose my birthday. 
And he was 10 years old. So they said, yeah, okay, let's choose your birthday. I think it's a, it's a good date because it's springtime. It's a very good day to have events. And I, I don't know what they did that year, but here in Israel, we heard about it. We read about it, so we started it in 2006, and then every year we're having an event. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. I love that. And I, once I got into the community and, and learned about Autistic Pride Day and sort of, you know, what different places were doing and places all over the world, you know, how they were celebrating, what was like the most memorable Autistic Pride Day event that, that you participated in? Okay, so we also did a documentary about autism in this country. So for me, the most memorable was in 2012, because then I came with a documentary team. And on the one hand, it was a bit more difficult because you're not as spontaneous. You, you are aware that you're being filmed. And sometimes they tell you, hey, do it again, because we didn't film it well. But, uh, but it was still the most memorable because I felt that that it was no longer just a few guys with guitars on the grass, but we were also starting to spread the message to the wider world. And yeah, every every year we bring guitars, we bring some food, some people read their poems, some people bring, I don't know, sculptures that they make, people play games on the grass. Or, or as families with autistic children are joining us, so so it's nice. Yeah, this year we only had it online, but uh, I don't know. This year maybe we would still not be able to do it. I don't know. Five months from now, we'll wait and see. Uh, and it's not just us, because in England, in the past few years, there are at least a dozen. Autistic Pride Day event uh, around the country in London, Manchester, uh, I don't know, Cambridge, Oxford, all around the country. It's really nice. Uh, and the same year as Autistic Pride Day, also Otske began. So what happened is that Otrit in the United States was quite known around the world. and. Many of the autistics who participated in the in Matine Decker's uh, independent living of the autistic spectrum mailing list, uh, they wanted to go to Otrit, but it was uh, across the Atlantic. And they said, okay, why don't we start our own Otrit in Europe? Uh, and so they did. So, so in 2005, they started having the Otscape event, which is it's basically the same as Otrit, but it takes place in England. Initially, they wanted to move between some countries, like have it England one year, Netherlands one year, Finland one year. But in practice, it's like 15 years, and it has always been in England. And I started attending it uh, the year after that, 2006. And I attended every year from 2006 to 2015. And then I said, oh, well, I went 10 years in a row. That's too much. <laughs> now I'm still going. <laughs> now, now I'm going uh, every other year or every third year. Like I'm alternating. 
it's good to go. getting to sense a pattern here. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I've done this for a bit. I need some new, some new material. <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously. Yeah. I think we are all uh, so much in that just as people you know we have that sense of seeking novelty you know there's a lot of neuroscience research about how our brain seeks novelty and it, for as much as uh, we love our routine and our consistency we also seek novelty yeah i definitely yeah i, I get bored yeah that's true <laughs> you're not alone i'm the same way yeah <laughs> So in 2006, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network started, which was, I think, the first autistic organization which was really focused on politics. Even though Aspies for Freedom were also interested in politics, but Autistic Self-Advocacy Network was far more serious than it still is. And it was started by a guy named Aine Man, who is American, but his parents are from Israel. So Obviously, I got in touch with him, and we've been in touch for many years. Uh, so he was he was really young there. He was 19 in 2006, but old enough to start an autistic organization. And then he went to Otrit uh, to give a lecture about the organization in 2007, and that was the year where I went to Otrit. So. I met him over there, or maybe I'm, no, I'm not confusing, it was 2007, and, and he built chapters all around America. Nowadays, it's a bit different. The organization still exists. I mean, I, I think it's much larger than before, but I'm not following it that much. The chapters closed down, and I don't know. I feel it, maybe it's a bit like, got itself detached from the community. I don't know, others may think other than me. But it's a very, very important organization for anyone who's interested in the politics of autism. Uh, they have a mailing list so everyone can subscribe and then you can get messages from them or just visit the website and see what they're all ab around about. And yeah, and also back then they had a lot of uh, demonstrations around the United States, uh, mainly because Autism Speaks was raising a lot of money, and all of the money was actually going uh, either for salaries for Autism Speaks managers or, or for genetic tests that really, really don't help any autistic people. So there were lots of protests by the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network uh, against what Autism Speaks were doing. And the protests were basically, if you want to donate money, donate it to services, the autistic people, and not to genetic tests. But I don't yeah, know if they still... Sorry, go ahead. I don't know if they're still doing those protests. Back then, there were lots of protests, and I loved seeing the photos, and there were also videos on YouTube but I really don't know if they're doing them anymore. <laughs> I don't know so much as just like on-site, you know, public protest, but there is definitely still a current that moves through the online communities. 
And for all of those late identified people who are coming into the communities, you know, people who've been in the community for a while are, are trying to make sure that they're educating and sharing because there is still that, you know, general open belief that autism speaks is doing something to help us when in fact, the more you look and the more you learn, in fact, they are not. So finding sort of the history of this and you sharing this is just fantastic. I think this just takes it a little bit further, the knowledge for those of us who are her late identified coming to this or who are just joining the community and really learning about the history of our own community is so important. And people are like, well, what's wrong with Autism Speaks? And then, of course, you know, everybody in the entire online group is going to voice an opinion or express um, an experience that they've had to say, this is why they're not for us. This is why we do not support them. And these are other groups and organizations that we do support that are run by autistics that are for autistics and their, their services that are for us, where we are the beneficiaries of the money, where that isn't the case in a lot of, of these big organizations that we do see now. And I, I love that you're bringing this in. This is wonderful. Okay. And here... So a year later, after the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network was formed, there was also the European reply. There was the London Autistic Rights Movement. And the London Autistic Rights Movement, it, it actually started at Otscape because there was this guy in the photo. He's called Roderick, and he's very interested in politics. So we came to, to Otscape in 2007 and handed flyers to everyone, and he said, Let's meet outside here at seven o'clock, discuss politics. So <laughs> I remember I went to the meeting, even though I don't live in England, but I was interested to hear. And there were quite a lot of people who were interested in politics and they were talking and talking. And then they said, okay, so let, let's start a political advocacy organization for autistics. And that was how the London Autistic Rights Movement began. And Later, it, it went throughout the UK, so it became the Autistic Rights Movement UK, and then it shortened its name. So nowadays, it, it's just uh, Autistic UK. But that, that's the beginning. <laughs> um, okay, and now, so after 2010, there were so many things happening <laughs> that it's, it's impossible to, to go into detail as much as I went before. And I also think it's not that important because nowadays, everything that happens nowadays is based on, on the things that happened before. But I do like to show a bit of what's happening now. So we have here Ot Minds Meeting of Minds. That's basically the Dutch reply to Otscape. It was uh, started by a few uh, people from the Netherlands who used to attend Otscape every year. And then they said, okay, we'll have such a thing in the Netherlands just for the Dutch autistic community. But they do try to have some presentations in English as well. And this year they had to go online. So I attended it out of curiosity and there were some presentations in English. So. So it's, it's not just in Dutch. And there's the awesome conference that's 
being done in Ireland. It's also an, an all autistic conference. It's produced by Evelyn Welton, who is autistic herself. Yes, and, and Evelyn is actually going to be a guest coming up in the podcast. So I'm really excited to get to share her as well. And I, I love to see sort of when it started. 2010. I mean, we're, we're talking 11 years in the making. So this has been the best history lesson. I am loving this. Oh, they, they, these are after 2010, because now I, I'm no longer know exactly. Oh, I got you. So. I got you. <laughs> I think the There's awesome so much one happening. Very, yeah, no, the awesome one is, I don't know, two, three, maybe three years old. It's not very old. Well, I'll get the hardcore answer, the concrete answer from Evelyn. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And what do we have more? Oh, we have the Association for Autistic Community. That's really important because, because Autrit uh, stopped being produced in 2013. So some of the organizers wanted to continue it, but they couldn't continue it as, as Autrit because Jim Sinclair decided that they're not going to do it anymore. And because Jim Sinclair was the main person, Jim Sinclair didn't want anyone else to use the, the term outreach because you know, if, you, if you've worked on something, you don't want others to use the name and do something that you're not involved in. So, so some of the organizers uh, started the Association for Autistic Community and they're doing an annual conference named Ot Space. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think they're doing it every other year or so. I'm not sure. I, I thought they stopped doing it, but then I, I saw that just a few months ago they posted about hoping to do another one in 2021. Uh, what more? So we have the Autistic Pride Alliance. That's basically an alliance of people who organize Autistic Pride events in their own towns or in their own countries. And it's, it's a bit of a loose network, but we have a Facebook group and, and that's where we kind of coordinate uh, dates for Autistic Pride Day, because even though the official day is 18th of June, uh, sometimes it's just not convenient. So we do events around 18th of June, but not, not just on the day, and sometimes even a month later, it depends. And, and there's the Autistic UK, which I talked about earlier. That's basically the new incarnation of the London Autistic Rights Movement. Uh, and there's Otwave, which is uh, in Finland. It's also inspired by Otscape. It's an all autistic conference. And also they do a bit of English in it. I think they have very nice videos online from the past conference of uh, presenters from other countries who came to Finland to present. So a lot of it is in English, so everyone can enjoy it. And, and the one the other thing is the UCAP. It's the European Council of Autistic People. That's quite new. It's maybe one year old. And it's basically based, it's an umbrella organization. It's a political advocacy organization by autistic people but it's mostly uh, made of, of organizations such as Autistic UK or, or similar organizations in many countries in continental Europe. And they all go together to coordinate things. They even have offices in Prague, in the Czech Republic. That, that's like 
were the main offices. And also one of the organizers of Otwave, she's very, very uh, interested in the whole pan-European autistic community. I think she was one of the major forces which started the European Council of Autistic People. And I think I went through all those logos. And there's obviously a lot more. I mean, if we're talking about the past decade or so, there are obviously many, many autistic bloggers, many autistic YouTubers. I just, I try to focus on, on organizations and on events. Uh, I think I covered most of that. I uh, think you have. I have learned so much. This has been fantastic. It really has. And I hope that this has really helped everyone who's watching and listening today learn more about the history and the, the origin of organizations, how they came about. Because, you know, it's so often that one group starts and then, you know, things happen and things evolve over time. And then another group spins off from there, you know, and just to see the connection and how it evolved over time has just been really, really great. Thank you so much for sharing all this. You're welcome. I think it's my special interest. I enjoy speaking about this. I'm really curious to know what the next decade would bring because it's obviously going to continue to evolve from now on. So have you started working on your history of the autism community from 2020 to sort of... <laughs> journal and document this because I feel like that that could be its own thing because of how it brought 2020 just from what 2020 has been for us and how it drew so many people online because of the virus and people quarantining and, and that kind of thing. I've met so many people this year who discovered that they were autistic because they were online in places that they'd never been before. And they had time to really realize, hey, I'm a lot happier not having to leave my house and you know, that type of thing. So you being this fantastic journal writer and historian really need to start documenting this. I think it would be fascinating to revisit in a couple of years with you on this. It's interesting because I know, I mean, the whole video conferencing on the internet it, it probably existed for many, many years, but people ne never used it much. And this year, pe people had to use it. Like, I remember maybe just a year ago, somebody asked me, are you using Zoom? And I didn't know what it meant. Never heard of Zoom. And, and just a month later, suddenly, everybody around me started using it just because they didn't have any other options because everybody was stuck at home. And, and yes, and then they had Otscape on Zoom last summer. And now they're saying, okay, obviously we would want to have a physical Otscape when it's possible, but let's continue having it in parallel on Zoom because then you have people from around the world would be able to join without having to fly across the ocean or whatever. So, so it's, yes, it's I, really opened up 
the world. People would continue using it. Even, I mean, it's funny because we could have used it before. I don't know. <laughs> it's really interesting to, to watch and to see how people have, for something that has been around forever, you know, because I've done go-to meeting and Zoom and a couple other things, you know, prior to this, but never been a daily avid user until yeah. now. And yeah. to be able to get on and be creative with how we're using online video conferencing now in our community, in our autistic community, you know, we're, we're meeting and having conversations, sort of like what started with Donna Williams in that little apartment of Kathy's, you know, we're yeah. now sort of having that same experience and that same evolution in our social circles. We're coming together in these Zoom rooms. And, you know, our friend Diane is doing those fantastic social meetup where we're all getting together on Zoom once a month. And it's mm -hmm. these things are what we've craved and we've wanted and we needed, but we didn't know how to find our other people. We didn't know how to find our other autistic people, you know, to find those that are like us to be in relationship with and to be in community together. And I think that that has been probably one of the biggest gifts of a really tough year is that so many of us have found friendships and found community and found people to get together and have a conversation with that we've never had that opportunity like this before. Yeah, yeah. It's like when the circumstances are forcing you to go to go into video conferences, then, then suddenly you see <laughs> that it's a very efficient means. I, mean, I don't know about you. I mean, I've, I've stepped out of my comfort zone and really tried a lot of new things. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't... No, yeah, I did a few video talks on Skype years ago, maybe six years ago, seven years ago, but not much. I mean, I mean, yeah. Nowadays, this this Zoom community meetings, it's it's like it's the new normal, and perhaps it's going to stay the new normal because it saves traffic jams. It, it saves a lot. <laughs> it really does, and you know. For those of us who are like, okay, I'm exhausted after I had to get up, get dressed, and, and then go somewhere, drive, or, you know, whatever it was, by the time I get there, I'm too tired to talk or socialize or anything. I just want to go back home and get my clothes yeah. off and lay down. <laughs> I think it's really opened up a lot to a lot of us because it, it's also, you know, from a sensory standpoint, from just sort of um, taking down that barrier of having somebody directly in front of you, you know, sometimes that's just sort of anxiety inducing and being behind a screen is sort of a little bit of a buffer and it still allows us the community and the communication, but without some of that sensory overload. So that has really been a big deal for a great number of us this year, I think. Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. I wonder how, how it would continue once things get to normal. How how the teleconferencing would be 
be side by side with, with real life meeting. Obviously, we're going to do both. The evolution yeah. will be amazing to see. And I will be thrilled to do this again and have this conversation in 2031. And you and I get together and you put your slide pack together from everything that's happened from 2020 for an entire decade. I would enjoy that. Yeah, I would too. So you know what? I am going to go ahead right now and just let you know to go ahead and pencil that into your diary because we're going to okay. be doing that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> We're going to be doing that. Definitely. Because I, this has been wonderful. This really has. Thank you so much for the time that you put in, the knowledge, and to have you from the living, breathing, I was there perspective has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing this with me today, sharing this with the Mind or Autistic Brain community and with the autism community at large, because every time we come together and have a conversation, we're elevating everyone. We're sharing and we're reaching out, letting somebody next to us know you're not alone. You're not the only person that experiences the world this way or thinks this way. I kind of see it that way too, or I've experienced that. And when we have these kind of conversations, that lets somebody else know that, hey, you're not alone anymore and it's okay. You're perfectly wonderful just how you are and you're not alone. And that is the best part of community that I can think of. Okay. Thank you <laughs> for, for doing this podcast. <laughs> Yashani, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and information with us. I will have as many links as I can possibly find for everything that you shared today in the show notes below. If you guys are just loving this and you are adoring my new friend, please go and visit him on Facebook. If you live in Israel, because we've got a pretty good sized group of listeners now, if you're in Israel and you are and you are you speak Hebrew and you are looking for translations for articles, make sure you go and visit his site on Facebook and get all of those wonderful things. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time and thank you for all of your wonderful knowledge today. Thank you.